Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favourite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish tech news. Hi, uh, so today on the Irish Tech News podcast, uh, we uh, have an interesting conversation uh, with someone who is bringing uh, a lot of their expertise to leverage unexpected insights, perhaps. So first of all, uh, who do we have the pleasure of speaking to today? Hi, Simon. My name is Stephen Brennan, and I work for KPMG in the Tax Incentives Department, and I specialize in the R&D tax credit. Okay, so uh, I guess first up, uh, for those who... uh, Maybe tell us a bit more like uh, R&D, I get that, tax credits, how do the two go together and what is it that you do? Yeah, so like I said before, um, I'm a member of a team within KPMG that specializes in the R&D tax credit. And the R&D tax credit in Ireland is a system that incentivizes companies who are doing research and development activities. So if they are incurring a spend on a project that's considered to be R&D, they can get 25% of that, uh, that spend back. Uh, so what myself and my colleagues do is we use a combination of our own industry specific knowledge and our like knowledge of the tax credit and the surrounding guidance to help make sure that our clients are are claiming qualifying projects and to make sure that the way that they are uh, presenting these projects to the revenue um, is in line with the guidance and legislation mm-hmm. okay so so w- what's your own background like what did you train in and and how, how, what was the path that took you from training in that to doing this yeah, so it's a good question and to cut a long story short, I, uh, I studied in Trinity College Dublin, studied engineering and specialised in electronics. Uh, so I graduated Trinity and went to work for Intel in Leakslip as part of the Internet of Things and Wearables group. And that was really my first exposure to real research and development work within large industry. Um, so within that team, I was working on pre-silicon validation of these kind of cool and cutting edge products that were going to be coming out a couple of years down the line. However, when I was in college, my special area of specialty was analog electronics. So I wrote my thesis in, in analog. And uh, when an opportunity arose in Qualcomm and Cork to join their up and coming analog team, I took it. So I moved to Cork in 2018 and uh, joined the analog team as an AMS methodology engineer. So what that means is um, I'd be looking at the, the kind of the process flows that they had for the analog design and uh, working with the tools that the analog team used to make the circuits and then writing custom software to augment the functionality of those tools to robustify or make the process more robust. I don't know if robustify is the word. Um, so, however, my family were based in Northern Ireland and my girlfriend is based in Dublin. So every weekend I was either traveling up north or going to Dublin. So after a year, I started looking for other opportunities in Dublin again and uh, came across the KPMG rec. So I was really curious at the outset as to why a company like KPMG would be hiring electronic engineers. Um, so I went to the interview and met the team and found out that the team are from a huge, like hugely diverse array of backgrounds in science. So we've got microbiologists and we've got mechanical engineers, computer scientists, and material scientists. And uh, the job itself really seemed extremely interesting in that you get great exposure to research and development projects being done by these companies who are really working on next level stuff. Uh, so that was that, that was kind of it and then two years later here i am mm-hmm. uh, yeah okay so 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 to, to dive in that into that a little bit are, are you almost like uh 
advising them from an entrepreneurial perspective or from the science technology as in or from the perspective of will it work or in terms of the efficiency of of tax rebates like in, in, in which part do you engage in that process and how do you help them so generally with our clients we carry out technical interviews where we'll sit down with our clients look at the work that they've done over the last year and then evaluate which of their products or projects would be good candidates for the R&D tax credit. And it's it's kind of complex in a way because the definition of research and development, though it stays pretty much the same, um, it has to cover a field of, or all the fields of science and engineering. Um, and within that, you've got subfields that have developed extremely quickly over time to the point where, you know, something that might've been considered unilaterally R&D a few years ago, uh, can be a bit of a mixed bag nowadays so if we took deep learning for instance um, a few years ago deep learning would have been used pretty much exclusively at the cutting edge of computer science and wasn't widely used across the industry but now we're seeing clients who aren't in the computer science space using deep learning uh, tools to solve some of their more tricky problems so the question we're asking now is is deep learning is it still truly at the cutting edge of computer science no matter how you apply it is it still r&d no matter how you use it or is it the case where because of the way the field has has developed over time that it could be construed as being routine engineering work and um, because you're you're not using it in a, in a cutting edge or or in an innovative way so that's the kind of questions that we'd be asking our client when something like this comes up mm-hmm. okay so and so like a 25 percent rebate sounds good but is is there much uptake of this in ireland is it some is this something that everyone's doing or is it something that people don't really know enough about yet? Well, I'd say it's pretty hard to put a concrete number on it. The R&D tax credit has been around for a number of years now. And I think that generally it's there's a fairly good uptake among technology companies. Um, as well as that, a lot of the work that our team does is in, around increasing awareness of the credit through LinkedIn and blog posts and, and podcasts like this. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and so you said that things that were R&D before are now routine, right? So so if that's the case, uh, w- what are the more bleeding edge areas? So that's a really good question and it actually represents quite a unique problem in our space. So if we look back a few years um, where deep learning was just kind of coming out onto the scene, everything you did in deep learning would have been considered cutting edge. However, now that it's kind of hit a bit of maturity and you can use deep learning in nearly like, like in an out of the box way, um, the question becomes, you know, how cutting edge is it? And really the answer to that is it's all in how you use it. So how you apply the technology determines how far along the, the bleeding edge of tech you are. So right. So it's deep learning where a bit like AlphaGo Zero, where, where you don't actually prescriptively program it. You just tell it the big thing to fix. Is, is that deep learning or is that not? Yeah, it could definitely be considered within the space, considering you've got a learning algorithm and you've probably got a large training set as well behind it. Um, but I mean, deep learning, like we were saying before, is is nearly able to be recognized as a field within itself um, because you've got people working on the absolute cutting edge of deep learning. And then you've got guys who aren't even in the field of computer science who are applying deep learning to solve problems that previously they wouldn't have been able to resolve using using traditional compute methods and algorithms. Um, and I guess this kind of this kind of propagates through a lot of technical industries where, you know, because of the accelerated rate of development that we're seeing now, you've got fields that are popping up and trends that are emerging, reaching mature, maturity extremely quickly and then being swapped out for the next best thing. So, so would it be a fair characterization to say that, you know, the time frame of progression, uh, things are coming along much faster and therefore you almost have to have a strategy for how to 
work out, deal with, identify, and incorporate possible new technologies because because they 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 they, they emerge much faster. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's definitely fair to say that the rate of technological development is always accelerating. And I think that's just due to the availability of knowledge and our ever-growing knowledge base. Um, I mean, as well as that, if you're working in tech, it really is within your best interest to familiarize yourself with the most cutting-edge uh, technology available to you because that's going to help you solve problems you couldn't solve before. It might help you save money. It might help you increase your performance. Um, you won't really know until you get out there and explore. And like we were saying before as well, it could be the case that you find the algorithm that fixes your problem today and a few years time you're going to deprecate that algorithm because you found something better. So it's just a case of always evolving and out with the old and in with the new. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so, so we've interviewed a few people who've spoken about uh, quantum and the potential applications of that in computing. And obviously, one of the conversations is, is that, you know, uh, where are we between what's theoretically possible, it could crack every password, or yes, that is theoretically possible, but it's not realistic. Uh, I guess, where are you on that? And, and does that relate to, uh, are you seeing R&D aspects like that? Or are we not yet in Ireland? Yeah, so while I don't have any clients or I haven't seen any projects myself that involve quantum computing, um, I'd say it's a fairly safe bet to say that someone somewhere is doing it in Ireland because we do have big players in the space like IBM here in Dublin. Um, so I'd say while I haven't seen it myself, it is likely that it is happening. And in terms of the future of quantum, it's really difficult to say what that's going to look like whenever we finally see quantum computers hitting the, the kind of the larger technological space outside of research and development. And uh, they, while they could offer significant benefits, there is that fear, as you say, that suddenly all of our encryption and security is going to be rendered completely useless. So uh, I'd say while I'm optimistic about the future of, of, of quantum computing, um, I am a little bit wary. So. <laughs> Um, okay, so in that context, how do you remain uh, informed and up to date so that you have a sense of what's coming down the line, uh, what, what kind of things people are likely to be excited about, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the main the main thing is just read a lot. So I read a lot of consumer tech blogs, so Engadget, The Verge, Irish Tech News, of course, um, Silicon Republic. And if we're dealing with a client in a new space, then I'll also read a few research papers around that and the patents in that space as well. So we're also incredibly lucky to work with some really great clients who are on the cutting edge of tech. Um, and it's really interesting to see that even across different clients, you'll see the same trends wax and wane as the years go on. Yeah, look, I mean, it is, it's great, isn't it? I mean, it's, that, it's the kind of things where you, you get out of the, the rabbit hole and you, you look more to the big picture. Um, in, that, in that context, uh, how, do you, how do you assess the potential of R&D. Are, are you kind of comparing to see, is it really innovative? Does it really have a market potential? Are you, I guess, what are the criteria that you assess whether something has good potential for being R&D and R&D tax credits? Yeah, so generally the first step of the process that we'd follow is we'd look at the legislation. So if you break the legislation down, you can extrapolate five kind of key points that you'd need to hit um, in order to get qualifying R&D activity. Um, and then from there, I guess it's important to examine the nature of research and development itself. So research and development is all about, you know, a quest for knowledge. It's not about creating the latest and greatest new product. So we'll look at the, the project that our client has put forward and ask them the question, you know, what was the uncertainty that you had, like the technological uncertainty around knowledge and what knowledge do you seek to gain from doing this project? Um, as well as that, we'll look at the technology baseline. So that would be, you know, the similar products that are out there in the space or you know what are other people doing in this space at the moment and is what they're what what our client is doing seen as being cutting edge or new in the space 
So, the, you know, an assessment of the, the legislation, um, a deep dive into the project, and then an examination of the technology baseline would be how we generally go about assessing projects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That uh, makes sense. Um, so uh, when we have someone like you on, right, where do you feel we are with Moore's Law? Do you think Moore's Law, some people are saying it's, it's tapering off, we'll taper off, or do you feel, because you're reaching, uh, is it micro subatomic constraints so so is is Moore's law coming to an end or or will it continue because people will continue to innovate i definitely believe that Moore's law has an expiry date and i think that as we're hitting true seven nanometer um we're probably going to see that that sneak up on us pretty quickly Uh, so while i don't think that the future of of silicon development is going to be half the size of silicon twice the performance half the price um, I do think that there are other ways we can innovate, and I don't necessarily think that innovation in the future is going to mean shrinking silicon um, to get you know better performance. I think it's going to be more along the lines of bringing additional functionality on board uh, to add a specific you know to add value in a specific field. So that could be AI or or computer vision or something like that. Um, so while I think that the days of uh, squeezing the silicon onto the board to get maximum gigahertz per core is are probably behind us. Um, it still doesn't mean that the, the the kind of the accelerating functionality and the potential of silicon is done. Yeah, so it's a bit like the, like a bit like Tesla, and some of the Tesla updates are you don't take the car back to the garage, you just get a software update. It's physically the same car, but they've tweaked the they've tweaked the algorithms and the software to make it better. So that's the kind of scenario you're outlining. Yeah, absolutely. I would say I don't agree with over the air software updates on cars though, because I don't think you should treat your car like a piece of software. But if we take it back to what we were talking about before on 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 silicon, um, yeah, it is. It's going to be about bringing more functionality onto the board, and that could manifest itself in a number of different ways. Like, is it going to be the case where we're going to have more efficient chips, so longer battery life, or are we going to bring you know AI and CV cores onto our chips to make them better at you know artificial intelligence and computer vision algorithms? Because uh, there could be applications for that that we haven't really explored yet that are going to be big in the future of computing, uh, or is it going to be the case where we're going to make our mobile chipsets better by bringing, you know, better graphics onto them? So we're not necessarily changing our process, but we're actually changing the architecture of our chips to achieve better functionality. Yeah, look, I think so too. It's almost like uh, you can only go so far with the hardware, but if you're smart and the the software, I mean. Sh- you know, in my brief time as a coder, you can see that code can be optimized and things can be done better. So it it, it makes sense, you know. Um, in in that con in that context, in terms of machine learning and AI, there have been discussions that that it, that, that it could impact on software in terms of, you know. Um, like creating a bigger distance between what the human needs to do and what's happening at, at the machine code level. So. Um, do you think about that in terms of software and electronics that I guess see see a, a distancing f- from the degree of coding that a human needs to do because you 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 will tell the machine what you what it needs to do or or is software still going to be important under the cover under the hood? Uh, yeah, so just to preface my next answer, uh, both my current flatmate and my girlfriend are hardware engineers at Intel. So I might be inherently biased when I say that um, I think that you'll always need a human working at the machine level, whether that's at the firmware design or whether you're you know, part of the testing process to make sure the quality of the chips remains consistent. And while I think there's great potential in things like AI and machine learning algorithms, I think that um, you know, there's definitely, we should be slightly wary of the fact that when you bring in machine learning algorithms, you're relying on the you know the coherency of of your training set 
so what what I'm trying to say is uh, for instance if we took facial recognition as an example early facial recognition algorithms were inherently biased towards uh, white Caucasian males because the training sets that they were using were predominantly white Caucasian males and just for the listeners who who might not know what a training set is a training set is a set of inputs that you give to the algorithm to help it learn like basically what it's targeting so in the case of facial recognition you're giving it thousands of pictures of people's faces so if we took it back to like chip design what we were talking about before ai and ml could be used across the industry to do things like accelerate your test process or identify new test corners or even things like you know circuit design but if you don't have a great knowledge of the training set that you're using while you're employing these algorithms there is a risk that you're following a process that you don't completely understand Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, and so that's a great point, and that's you know much like say, uh, as you speak about with the algorithm, and that you know it recognises white males very well, and you know uh, uh, people of ethnicity or women much less so. And so, uh, Timur Gebru was raising this with the Google algorithm. Um, so you know, if, if 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 you had a magic wand or you were advising. Uh, companies in AI, because we, we, we spoke to somebody who called himself the data whisperer. And so he was chatting about, you know, like, you know, if, if you don't manage the data at the beginning, then it, it is, it's still garbage in, garbage out. So mm. uh, what kind of uh, advice or tips would you give to ensure that, that people have, like you say, the best quality data sets and with algorithms that don't have implicit biases in them? So I don't think there's really a one-size-fits-all solution to the problem. However, there are certain things that you can definitely do to make sure you're getting the best out of your algorithm. And I think that there are also trade-offs within that that you need to consider as well. So if we think of like a training set, an obvious trade-off to me would be, you know, size of the training set versus quality of your output. So at what point, you know, after you're increasing the size of your, of your training set, do you start to see diminishing returns when it comes to the accuracy of your output? So obviously more images is better from the algorithm perspective in terms of recognizing things, but um, the more images you have or the more the more input training data you have, the more space that you have. Also generating that data can be tricky as well or coming across that data in the real world can be, can be cumbersome. Um, so it's kind of the same as, you know, in verification, when you carry out a verification of say a chip or a piece of software, you'll always be measuring it by coverage. So how much of the functionality are you covering and then that brings in the other aspect you can control which is proportionality so is the training set that you're inputting into your your algorithm representative of the kind of scenarios that the algorithm will encounter in real life so if you took for instance like an autonomous uh, driving algorithm you know are you feeding it the, the correct amount of data when it comes to different scenarios the car might encounter on the road whether that could be pedestrians or other motorists or motorcyclists or you know bicyclists and then from the facial recognition standpoint that we were talking about earlier you know are you getting a fair representation of all of the different kinds of people who are going to be using your application like do you have all of the nationalities and and genders that you might be expecting to see which is the challenge though isn't it because because for now uh, a lot of the data sets have not been geographically and ethnically equal from around the world you know like arguably that some have said there's less data uh, from African-based things. On the other hand, people would see that China is perhaps moving ahead with AI because they've got such such a bigger data set. I mean, so I guess th- there are challenges, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. And then another question that you can bring into this is the provenance of these data sets. So, you know, you've got players in the US and players in China who are all generating massive amounts of data. And the question is, 
is there a point in the future where we're going to see these data sets being shared or consolidated and what's the level of benefit to us if they do that and what kind of derogatory effects will we see if they don't? Yeah, look, and, and so again, there's, you know, we uh, we reviewed a bit by Winston Ma that talks about this um, siloization of it, that, you know, uh, China and the US in many ways are moving further apart rather than closer. So you have data sets, but, but they're, they're definitely not open source. Uh, so yeah. I guess uh, uh, one big picture of question on this uh, before we get, we'll drill into logistics of the KPMG tax credits is with the singularity and, you know, local AI, but to general AI, um, is, is, is the singularity like Ray Kurzweil uh, initially predicted is going to be coming around quite soon in 2030s uh, and the Skynet scenarios or, 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 or are the concerns of Elon Musk and Bill Gates and others overstated? Yeah, so while I think the arrival of the singularity in 2030 is probably a little ambitious, um, I don't have any doubt that it is coming and it might even arrive within our lifetime. Uh, I would actually share the the concerns of people like Elon Musk and Bill Gates around the singularity. I think it's something that we should be incredibly wary of. Okay, and so so what would your tips be? <laughs> How to survive the the robot apocalypse? Um, I don't know. I I avoid I, it. Um, yeah, so I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier to do with process. So on the technical side, it's key that we understand how all of our technology works and that we don't um, utilize deep learning and machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms um, as a way to forge technological advancement without a greater understanding of what it's actually doing. And then from the ethical standpoint, I think that now is the time uh, that we should be thinking about legislation in order to determine what exactly it is we're allowing our artificial algorithms to do. And this is something that's already been put in motion. Uh, like key players like Elon Musk and, and Bill Gates have signed a petition in the UN to ban uh, autonomous killing um, killing machines basically t um, from being used in, in war. And this is something that I think that we should be extremely cognizant of as we move towards the future. It's like we have great uh, the, the potential for great technological advancement, but there's also the risk of opening a box that you can't close. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to put you on the spot. Okay, so cool. So in terms of the tax credits, who who should be applying and, and, and how, 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 how do they apply? So in terms of who should apply, I think if you're in the industry of engineering or science and you're doing research and development activities, it's definitely worth taking a look at the tax credit uh, to see how, how it can benefit you. In terms of how to, how to apply for the credit itself, um, I think there are going to be some materials attached to the podcast here where you can find more information out about our team and then get in touch with our partners and we'd be glad to hear from you. So perfectly. So then so that's so, so then my last question is how, how can people uh, learn more about this and contact you you guys? If you want to get in touch with me, my LinkedIn profile is going to be linked on this podcast. And if you want to learn more about the credit, uh, there's also going to be a link to our R&D incentives page. So uh, click that link and you'll be able to get in touch with our partners about it. Cool. Okay. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's been lovely to talk to you. That's great, Simon. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.